Well, good morning, Harvest. Happy spring to you. Yeah, you happy about that? All right, give me a woo if you are. That'll be the last time we do that, I think. It's incredibly awkward. Let's fix that. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to the Gospel of Mark. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. While you're turning there, we have prayed. The Lord has heard. We have worshipped His name. But now, if you would, please uh, join with me even as I pray. Father, I would now ask. Father, we ask boldly. Father, we do ask with a spirit of expectation because we believe that what happens next in this place is a matter of your Spirit's working. Lord, that you would um, illuminate the text of Scripture that we're about to read through, that we're about to study. Lord, that you would teach us. Father, use me, please. Guard my words. May they be helpful. Father, we know that what we are about to study has the power to transform lives. Father, the truth that's captured in these verses uh, can release sinners from captivity. God, may we be freed today. May we be strengthened in our spirits. Lord God, I pray. We thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. 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 Mark chapter 14. I see a number of new faces, so welcome to you. Uh, We are indeed in a series that we've called New Beginnings. New Beginnings. It's subtitled this, Finding Confidence from the Start. From the start of what, Uh, you may ask, finding confidence from the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. So that as we sit here, as we worship, as we come, desiring to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we would come to this confidence, everything that we do, all that we're about as a church, the principles that we follow, we would believe that they are firmly anchored in the words and the actions and the activities and the commands of Jesus Christ himself. And so we've come to this understanding. The Gospel of Mark was written by a young man by the name of John Mark, uh, who walked along with the Apostle Peter, uh, one of Jesus's key men. It was written then to the first century church. They would have gathered, they would have been meeting as a church, and they, they would have opened this gospel, and they would have said, oh my goodness, look at this. Jesus said this right here, and this is why we do this. This is why we believe this. This, These are the words of Jesus. And so here we are now, uh, chapter 14, and the last third of the Gospel of Mark. Right now, as we pick up the narrative, as we pick up the text today, what do we find? We find Jesus in the last week of his life. This is called the Passion Week as it pertains to church history. So far, we've studied already Monday, which is the triumphal entry. Sunday, pardon me, the triumphal entry. Monday, then, was the cleansing of the temple. Tuesday, a very long Tuesday. Four sermons long was the day Tuesday. Long conversations and battling with the religious leaders. And let's not forget about the Olivet Discourse, talking about the end of the age. And now today, Thursday, which may cause you to say, what happened to Wednesday? We don't know. It was silent as it pertains to the Gospels, but the Lord had a lot to do on Thursday. And so today, today is a day of preparation. Today is a day of memorial as it pertains to the Passion Week. The key word today is prepare. Say prepare. Prepare. When I think about preparation, I don't know about you, but I have this um, 
confession that I would like to make. Maybe it's a little bit of a phobia. Anyone here may, may be on this with me. Anyone have kind of an irrational fear of being unprepared? Come on, be honest with me. You weren't prepared to raise your hand, so you're not. I get it. At the peak of anxiety, uh, when my plate is extremely full, when I have a lot going on and my schedule is more than it probably should be, I have the accountability of my wife in that for sure. Uh, the elders watch over me with this for sure. But I have my own internal kind of meter, if you will, and usually it's triggered in my dreams. Anyone have reoccurring dreams? You see, when anxieties are at their peak for me, I have this reoccurring dream of kind of coming up here upon this platform, asking you to turn in your Bibles and me looking down, having no notes and being totally unprepared. Like my palms are getting sweaty, like just thinking about that. And so um, I was a Cub Scout as a kid. Anybody a Cub Scout? Anybody in the Boy Scouts? Um, I don't remember a lot about the Cub Scouts. My mom was a den leader. I was a Weeblo, and so I at least knew this. Always, say always, always be prepared. Say always be prepared. You see, preparedness is a powerful force. When I think about preparedness, here's what happens in my mind. Look, you may outwit me in a debate. You may outplay me in a sport. You may outrun me in a race. You may outstrategize me in a meeting, but there's absolutely no excuse for you to outprepare me for any of those encounters. Anyone think like that? Think about the power of preparedness. I think about the power of preparedness when it comes to a team. Think about all of the sports movies. Like sports movies are made on this premise alone, that the underdog prepares himself to take out the unbeatable force. Like it's like a David and Goliath narrative is something that we are all about all of the time. And so uh, some of you may know, you may have heard me say that I have four boys at home. And uh, so we, we just... Sports is kind of a thing for us. And so uh, right now, though, we have a four-year-old who just turned five who is totally obsessed with hockey. Check this out. <laughs> and since he can't wear that helmet anywhere, his mom bought him this hat because he wanted to wear the helmet everywhere he went. Oh, that was a different reaction than I expected, but thank you for that. And so when I think about sports, when I think about that kind of the underdog making it through and taking over, hockey right now is kind of filling my mind. And so I immediately think about the 1980 Olympic hockey team. Anyone remember the story? 1980 Olympic hockey team? I was one year old. It was a team, full, as a team made up of complete amateurs. The youngest hockey team that's ever been put on skates to represent our country in the Olympics. These young kids, if you will, went up against the professionals, the four-time Olympic gold medalist Soviet Union. The world knew that the United States didn't stand a chance. And honestly, there was only one person on the planet who even believed that they had a chance to win. They just lost an exhibition game against the Soviets 10 to 3. The one man who believed they could win was Coach Herb Brooks. In an interview, he said this, I just believed we could win. So in the morning of the game, I called the team together and told them, listen guys, this is meant to be. 
This is your moment, and it's, gonna, it's going to happen. It's kind, of, it's kind of corny, I know, as I look back, and I, I could see them thinking, here goes Herb again. <laughs> but I believed it. Why did he believe it? Why was he so certain? Why is it when the millions around the world uh, tuned into this, they expected a slaughtering? Why, why did he believe? Because Coach Brooks had been working a plan. Coach Brooks had a plan. He was prepared, and he had his team prepared when it mattered most. And what you have to understand about this is he, he'd been working a plan for months and months. He'd actually, in the recruitment of his players, he whittled this team down from 68 candidates down to 20. The way he whittled his team down to 20 players is he made every single one of them take a 300-question exam so that he would know their temperament, he would know their strengths, he would know their weaknesses. And so having been cut from the 1960 Olympic team, he had in his mind, I'm not taking necessarily the most skilled players, I'm taking the toughest players. And so he knew them. He knew their limits. He knew how far to push them. He was not the kindest coach in the world, but he was a guy who understood his team. And so this pep talk on this particular morning wasn't really a pep talk at all. It was a pronouncement. It was a pronouncement of a culminating preparation. Coach Brooks was prepared, and he had his team ready. As we move swiftly toward the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, what I want you to know this morning is this is that Jesus Christ was 100% prepared for the cross. I want you to know this. I want you to know that Jesus Christ, in his preparedness, was preparing his disciples, his team, his band, to endure, to be ready, to be strengthened to face that which was coming their way. What was coming their way? The cross itself. What was coming their way? The resurrection. What was coming their way? the mission that they were going to be called to fulfill once Jesus Christ left this earth. Jesus chose the 12. Jesus knew their weaknesses and he knew their strengths. Jesus challenged them to their very limits. And soon enough, soon enough, Jesus was going to secure their victory on the cross. Hear me, Jesus Christ is still in the business of preparing his disciples. Jesus Christ is still in the business of strengthening you. And so the question that I have for you this morning as we come to this text is, are you prepared? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has chosen you? That Jesus Christ does know you? Today, I believe that God desires for you to leave this place believing that. That God desires for you to come to this particular text of Scripture seeing that Jesus Christ was in full control, fully prepared, and that in his preparedness, in Jesus Christ's preparation to die, we will find our preparation to live. In Jesus Christ's preparedness to die, you and I will find a preparation to live. So are you ready? Are you ready to be prepared this morning? Are you ready to be prepared in the way that Jesus himself was prepared? If you are, say, let's go. Yeah. All right, three ways. 
Three ways to be prepared in in light of Christ's preparedness. Three ways that we might be prepared to live for him in light of Jesus Christ's preparedness to die. Mark chapter 14. Three ways. Here's the first one. We become prepared in Christ's preparedness when we set our minds in Christ's sovereign plan. When we set our minds on Christ's sovereign plan. We can become prepared when we realize that Jesus Christ is 100% prepared. He always has a plan. Take a look at the text, chapter 14, verse 12. We pick up the text with Jesus still being in Bethany. Pastor Darren last week taught us about the anointing of Jesus by the woman. Juxtaposed with the betrayal, the preparation of betrayal by Judas, now this, still in the town of Bethany. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a larger room, a room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went on the way to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared then the Passover meal. We prepare ourselves by setting our minds in Christ's sovereign plan. Verse 12, it says this, on the first day of unleavened bread, on the first day of unleavened bread, you can't really understand the text unless you know the context. And so I'm just kind of curious how much unpacking I need to do here. How many of you have recently in years past have celebrated uh, the festival of unleavened bread? Come on, raise your hand. All right, so that's, that's great. We'll be tucked in here till dinner time. It's hard for us to fully understand uh, just how uh, impactful, just what big of a deal, just how much hustle, just how much bustle was going on in the city of Jerusalem because we don't know much about this festival. But for the Jews, but for those who were alive during Jesus' day, they knew that around this time of the year, the earth might as well have stood still because all eyes were on the Passover and this festival. For sure, every God-fearing Jew stopped everything for this first day of unleavened bread. This first day would have been called the Passover. Say Passover. Does anybody know why it's called the Passover? Some of you are shaking your heads. I would call you front, but you would not like me for that. It's called the Passover because uh, it speaks of that which occurred in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was enslaved under Egyptian captivity. He rose up, his man uh, named Moses, and he said to Moses, I will free my people, and he called him to lead. And so we know this as we read uh, the book of Exodus, that God then sent 10 plagues to wake up the nation and free his people. All kinds of crazy stuff like boils and frogs. Like, you got to read this. It's really crazy cool. But on the last, on the last plague, it was this. The firstborn of the entire nation was going to be put to death. The Spirit of God was going to pass over the nation. And as he did, the firstborn of all would take their final breath. 
But he said to his people, what I want you to do is sacrifice a young, perfect lamb. And I want you to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And so when I come through this nation, I will pass over your homes. You see it? That's why it's called the Passover. This was like a week-long Memorial Day celebration. Exodus 12 says this. Exodus 12, 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Now listen, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first you shall remove leaven out of your houses. And if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. A week-long Memorial Day celebration that every year was kicked off by heads of households going to the temple and sacrificing a perfect lamb. They would then take that perfect lamb and they would bring it back home and that lamb would become the centerpiece of a feast where they would reflect, where they would remember that Yahweh, our God, he freed our people and we are a nation today because of what God had done for us. And so the city was buzzing and everybody was planning and everybody was preparing and everybody would have known just like when a holiday is coming up for you. Where are we having Christmas and where are we going for Easter this year? They would have been planning, happening all over and who's going to take the lamb for sacrifice and who's going to prepare the home and so when you come to this text what do we have the disciples are like hey Jesus it's like the day of Passover yeah you happen to have a plan Like, Jesus, you know, you know that the Passover meal has to be eaten inside the, the Jerusalem walls. And here we are, like, we're still in Bethany. Notice the question from the disciples here isn't if they're going to eat the Passover meal. What's the question? What's the question? The question is, where? Like, they knew it has to happen. I mean, if you're calling yourself a rabbi, like, we got to have a meal tonight. You ever wonder if Jesus has a plan? You ever hear the clock ticking as loud as your heart is beating about some kind of anxiousness? Have you ever wondered, Lord, why, would I, why do I not know? And what, why do I not know what's about to happen? And what do you have going on? You need to hear this. Jesus Christ has a plan. Where? Where is this going to happen? The question of where not only talks about the fact that they need a plan, it also may reveal a little bit of angst in the heart of the disciples. Because this where is crucially important. Why? What's happening inside the city right now? What's happening inside of the city? You read it at the beginning of chapter 14. The religious leaders right now are scheming for Jesus' death. Tensions are mounting. The Roman authorities we already studied in the triumphal entry are already on high alert. They're always on high alert during Passover. Other Messiah types have risen in the past and they've had to seize them and put them aside. They are concerned like, where, Jesus? How are we going to be able to do this? You ever concerned that Jesus' plan is going to be protective of you?
Jesus has a plan. I love his response. I love his response. I, if I were him, I would totally mess with them. I would totally be like, oh, are you kidding me? It's Passover already? You've got to be kidding me. Guys, come on. Come on, scurry around here, scurry around here. No, you can almost imagine Jesus swallowing hard again, looking at his men. He doesn't skip a beat. Come on, two of you, two of you. Why two? Because only two could go and sacrifice at a time. Come on, two of you disciples, go. Go into the city. Now watch, watch how specific Jesus' plan is. You're going to find a man carrying a water jar, and he's going to meet you. And if you're anything like me, you're like, man, I would think in the city of that size, like there's going to be a lot of guys carrying water jars. Anyone thinking that? You'd be wrong, just like I was. You see, it wasn't customary for men to carry water jars, and so it would, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. But somehow Jesus knew a man would be carrying a water jar, and he's like, come on, you see that guy? I want you to follow him. Watch, and wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, go right into that house, go into the house, ask him. He's going to basically know you're coming. The teacher says, where is my guest room? Where is it that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's what our master wants to know. And he will show you to a larger room. It will be furnished and it'll be furnished and lift up your voice, furnished and... It's ready. Why? Because Jesus, because Jesus, because Jesus already had a plan. You got two options. Either Wednesday's silent because he's setting up a Passover meal, or he's God. And he knew, and it was already prepared, and it was already ready. Jesus was in complete control all the way to the end. We saw it in his triumphal entry. We saw it this way. Go into the city and you'll find the donkey tied here. Go get him. Jesus was complete control all the way to his death. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down on his own accord. How pivotal, how crucial is verse 16 in this text? And the disciples set out and they went up to that city and they found it just as he told them. How many times have we doubted the Lord just to find out it was going to occur just as he said? How many times have we felt abandoned and alone just to learn again that God had a plan, he was in complete control and he had never left us and he had never forsaken us at any point? How crucial is it for these disciples to know that their rabbi, that their leader had a plan with all that they were about to endure? If Jesus Christ was in complete control all the way up into his death, Jesus Christ was in complete control, working out his plan all the way up until his death. How much more can we trust his plan on this side of victory into life? How much more can we trust his plan on this side of victory into life? If Jesus had a plan all the way to the cross, how much more is he working out his plan post-resurrection, post-Holy Spirit filling us, post-you-have-your-Bible, read it. Jesus Christ is working out a plan. He's in full control of all things. 
From the axis of the earth upon the spinning of the axis of the earth to the churning that might be happening in your stomach right now, Jesus Christ is in complete control. And he cares for you. And he has a plan for you. His plan even going to the cross was for us. Listen, friends, we can gain full confidence today in this. We can gain full confidence today in this. Jesus Christ has a sovereign plan. Jesus has a sovereign plan. Can you set your mind on this? When anxious thoughts find their way in, can you set your mind on this? It doesn't make sense right now, but Jesus Christ has a plan. I can't control what other people do. I can't control what comes into my way. But I can know this. Jesus Christ has a plan. He will always provide a way of escape. Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. Therefore, today, I can live for him. Jesus has a plan. Say, he has a plan. Set your mind on this. Here's the second thing. Here's the second way we can prepare ourselves. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can prepare ourselves this way that we would be able to search our hearts in light of Christ's sober prediction. That we'd be able to search our hearts in light of Christ's sober prediction. Here's what I want you to catch. Jesus Christ not only had a plan, he was not fooled nor taken by surprise by anybody else's plan. Not only did Jesus Christ have a plan, he was not taken by surprise by anybody else's plan. He not only had a plan, he knows your plan. He not only had a plan going under the cross, he knew Judas's plan. Take a look at the text. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Evening, why? Evening for sure, because the Passover meal had to be eaten in the evening and had to be done by at least midnight. Evening, why? Probably because he was uh, the center of attention and he was being sought after by the religious leaders. Nevertheless, he comes here in the evening. And he came with the twelve. With the twelve. Well, two had already gone, so that leaves us with two options. Either he brought the ten to join the twelve, or the two went back with him and they all came back together. Either way, they're together now. And so as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus uh, makes an announcement. And so what you need to know is that this announcement happens right in the middle of the Passover meal. And so what would have occurred up until this point, I have your pens, you may want to write these things down because uh, this is actually quite significant. Up until this point, Jesus would have been taking them through some of the memorial elements of the meal. He would have taken a cup And they would have drank of a cup of wine. He then, after taking a drink from this, uh, they would have had the memorial washing of hands. And note this, the memorial washing of hands, the Gospel of John reminds us, is before they would have had their memorial washing of hands, reminding them that there was a need for the cleansing of sin within them. Prior to that, Jesus would have done what? He would have already washed their feet. And so they would have taken of the cup and they would have washed their hands being reminded that they're sinners who need the work of Yahweh. That the meal that they were about to partake of was symbolic of blood that was shed on their behalf. And so as they washed their hand and they thought about the meal they were about to eat, they were reminded that blood was shed because I have to wash my hands. Then they would have taken of bitter herbs 
which would have reminded them of the bondage that they were once in in Egypt and which would have reminded them even in that day of the bondage they may have been in as it pertains to sin. They have drank of the cup. They would have washed their hands. Oh, how we need cleansing. Oh, the bitter herbs and the bondage we once were in and the sin that even captures us now. And then they would have taken up a second cup of wine. And at that point, at that point, the, the head of the house would have begun to tell the Passover story about how, uh, about how they were led from and how the lamb was slain and how the blood was put over the door and how the Lord passed over and how the nation was freed. And then with that, with that, they would have begun to sing psalms of praise called the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118. They would have began to sing psalms of praise right in the middle of the meal while they were reclined at the table. And with that, at the end of these psalms of praise would have come out the Lamb. And it was the responsibility of the head of the home then to parse out and to portion out the lamb that would have been sacrificed for them. We would surmise somewhere around that time then, because they would have been eating of the meal. All of these things would have already taken place. And Jesus drops a bomb. Jesus drops a prediction that was 100% true. Uh, The events were already put into motion. Look at the text. As they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, I'm reading the wrong verses. (laughs) He didn't say that, I just did. But they're going to be really good to preach in just about 15 minutes. And while they were reclining at the table, verse 18... And eating, Jesus said, here it comes, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I don't know how much time happened between the comma and what's written next, but I guarantee it had to have felt like an eternity. Because I don't know, I don't know what you're thinking, but like how many guys were like super surprised right now? How many? How many were really surprised? At least how many? Eleven. You see, there were two guys in the room who knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. One was Judas the betrayer, and the other one was who? Jesus Christ. He was not surprised. But the rest of the room, you talk about a guy who sucks the air out? They could hardly breathe at this moment. They were suffocating, and they had to been asking themselves, who, who, who? And Jesus like, well, let me just zero this in for you if somebody's sitting in this room. And then verse 19, my personal opinion, I believe it's one of the more shining moments of the disciples. My opinion, I think it's one of the more shining moments. You study it for yourself. Because their immediate response, their immediate response was what? Sorrow. Their immediate response was sorrow. Their hearts became incredibly heavy. And they had, to, they, had to, they had to ask themselves this one thing. Could it be me? Could it be me? 
Every one of them basically had to admit in asking the question they were about to ask, they had to see that it was potentially them. They could see within themselves that they could be. Every single one of them would have acknowledged that they were capable of doing what Jesus just said was about to be done. And so all of them, one by one, seemed to look him in the eye and say, is it me? How does Judas look Jesus in the eye and say, is it me? You ever come to Jesus and act like you're not capable? You ever come to Jesus pretty haughty and as if you don't see in your own self that you're capable of committing the worst sins? You talk about preparation to live for Jesus. Jesus Christ was 100% prepared. He had a plan. He knew. He knew. He knew. The men didn't know, but Jesus did. And here, you talk about preparing. We, and in order to prepare to live for Jesus, we have, we have to search our hearts. We can't live. We can't serve alongside Jesus. We can't live with him if we don't realize what we're capable of without him. You can't live with Jesus and for Jesus until you realize and you come to understand and you confess just what it is you're capable of without the power of Jesus Christ in your life. If you don't see yourself in the seat of Jesus, you've missed the heart of the gospel and we've run right past that we are totally depraved and sinfully lost and without Jesus Christ in my life. I'm hopelessly, me, I am hopelessly and helplessly lost. Judas failed. But every single disciple seemed to realize they were capable of the same. How's your heart in this? When you hear of another's failing, when you hear of another stumbling, what comes into your mind? Are you tantalized to read the next news story? Do you want to gather more details because it's utterly salacious and it tantalizes our flesh so much and enables us to compare and to make ourselves not feel so bad? But in those moments, we couldn't be farther from the grace of the Lord. In those moments, by God's grace, they ought to remind us of this. Look, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And so Jesus comes and he says, listen, it's one of you. Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve. 
the one who was dipping bread in the dish with me. Cue the gasp. Cue the gasp. Gasp. Sheer terror would come upon their faces in this because it meant, it meant someone they walked with and someone they talked with and someone they did ministry with and someone who they trusted and someone who they believed in. Don't get lost in this. We think about the ultimate betrayal. We think about the ultimate betrayal. But listen, everybody who betrays the Lord ultimately betrays those who are around them as well. This is one of the reasons why it hurts so bad in all of this. They would have gasped, not only because of this, but and if you were eating a meal with somebody, it was the closest, most affectionate act of the culture of the day. And so to be able to leave a meal after you just dipped bread with somebody and then go stab them in the back made you the worst of human beings. Not to mention, this was the Passover meal. Families. Families celebrated the Passover meal. Heads of the household would have led over the events of the meal. And on certain occasions, families would join together, but note this, they would have been close families and they would have opened their homes. Some of you in this room have been deeply betrayed. Some of you in this room in a small way can relate with what's happening here. You need to know that Jesus Christ can sympathize with your experience in this for he endured the greatest betrayal. But what kept him? What keeps us? Jesus had a plan. God the Father had a plan. Jesus Christ was not taken by surprise. Jesus Christ has a plan. God the Father is working all things together for good. That which is going to be meant for evil, ultimately Jesus Christ, God the Father, is going to use for good. And even in our small, mundane circumstances, although they may be big to us, stop and think, in the narrative of divine cosmic history, that was what's occurred. That that which was meant for evil, God used for good. And if he can use the greatest tragedy, if he can use the greatest betrayal to bring forth the redemption of mankind, I think he can redeem your situation as well. This prepares us. And here we have the convergence, the convergence of a theological truth that ought to blow our minds. It's a theological truth that I will not in any way do any justice to helping you understand, but it's a theological truth that exists in the text, and therefore we will drive right through it. We will address it. Look at verse 20 again. It's one of you who's dipping in the dish for, for, here's why. Notice why Jesus says it's going to happen. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but, but, so on one hand, there is divine sovereignty about to occur. In God's divine providence, he predicted in the Old Testament through prophetic words, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that the Messiah is going to be betrayed. There is something sovereign at work here. But... 
But woe to the man. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Something sovereign is happening. God is working it all together for good. But notice this. Judas is 100% responsible for his actions. Here you have the convergence. You have the convergence of divine sovereignty meeting man's volitional will. Judas chose. Judas chose to betray Jesus. And in his volitional choosing, he carried out that which was predicted to occur. Understand the depth of theology in this. Understand the security this ought to bring to you. When we don't understand the circumstance, we can see here God has a sovereign plan. And even though they were volitionally, there are those around me who are choosing to sin and who are choosing to hurt and who are choosing to make destruction, God is going to work out a plan. And so while we can meditate on and we can find ourselves lost in the parsing of the details, let's not miss the broader point here that God has a plan and he will use your messed up, sinful flesh and horrible choices to work out his purposes. That's a God I want to serve. But Jesus says this about how responsible Judas is. It would have been better if he was never born. And you may think that is a harsh statement or a harsh prediction, but such is the consequence of every person who rejects Jesus. Such is, such is the destiny of anyone who betrays Jesus as he offers unto you the gift of salvation. Such is the fate of anyone who comes and hears the grace that God offers, but yet we scoff and we walk away. And so this is where we examine our hearts. Do we see ourselves capable of the greatest sin? Do we see ourselves as no better? It's only when we come to realize that it's only by the grace of God that I wasn't in Judas' seat that day. It's only by the grace of God that I don't switch seats by the one who's offended me most. It's only by the grace of God. Prepare ourselves knowing this. Jesus was 100% prepared. He knew. But yet even in this moment, I believe Judas could have repented. I believe that if, even in this moment, he could have repented, and so could you today. We prepare, empowered by the Holy Spirit, how we set our minds knowing Jesus has a sovereign plan. No, it's true today, church. We prepare ourselves to empowered by the Spirit. How? By searching our hearts today, searching our hearts in light of Christ's sober, sober, sober prediction. And then here's the final point. We would be prepared this way by strengthening our spirits in Christ's spiritual promise. By strengthening our spirits in Christ's spiritual promise. Look at the text again. And so now back to the meal. As they were eating, then Jesus took the bread. What's about to happen is an event that has strengthened the spiritual preparation of every believer who's ever lived, who's ever named the name of Jesus. 
We would have known even as Jesus is taking the bread from the other gospels that Judas would have left the room by now. He would have whispered in his ear, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And the other disciples were still rather clueless. And so just stop and consider the moment as he would take the bread. As he would take the bread and he would distribute it to them and he would say, this is my body. And then verse 23, he would take a cup. Don't run over the next few words. When he had given thanks, knowing what you know, Christian, think about what he said next, having given thanks. Jesus has a plan. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus Christ right now is fulfilling a promise, so much so that he knows, that he knows that he can come to his Father with a spirit of thanksgiving for the opportunity that's going to be his to secure your salvation. And so having given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And then he would have said to them this, now having drank, here's what you need to know. This cup... This is my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant which has been poured out for many friends. Don't look over this moment. This is the Eucharist. Eucharist meaning to give thanks. Jesus would have given thanks. And as they would have taken of the cup, they would have looked down at what was left at the meal. They would have looked down at what was left at the meal. And they would have realized in this moment what was Jesus saying. I am the sacrificial lamb that was portioned out for you today. I am the blood that was shed of the cup that you just drank. I'm about to partake of the bitter herbs of sin and death that you would not endure bondage anymore. Listen, it's my body that's going to be broken even as I've broken this bread. Listen, it was lamb's blood that had to be shed over and over and over again. And yes, the blood was put over the doorpost and I passed over once, but I'm going to the cross where my blood's going to be shed and you will be saved once for all. For in one moment, a nation was saved, but in my death, all the souls of all mankind Every sin will be cleansed. When you sing the song of Hallel, I'm the joy of your salvation. It's me. It's me. This is my body. This is my blood. Why blood? Why did Jesus have to die? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 1.17-19, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what? You and I were purchased with the precious blood of Christ like that of the lamb without blemish or spot.
And then Jesus drops a promise. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Where I'm going, you cannot go. But where I go, I will prepare a place for you. But know this, I will return. And of this third cup, please partake, knowing it's a new covenant. It's a new covenant where my blood will be shed once for all. But in the kingdom, we'll take of the final cup together. And we will live. And we will endure. And we will reign. And you will worship. And we will be one. And all death will cease. And pain will be no more. And I will sit upon the throne of the kingdom for which you all have been craving. The day is going to come. And until that day comes, Luke 22 Verse 19, Jesus said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you do, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. The word remembrance here is not like in memory of. It's not merely a reflection or a call to mind. It's literally a present action that enables our hearts to connect with the events of the past. For Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ has implanted his Holy Spirit in the lives of everyone, in the hearts of everyone who's trusted in him. And so we call this communion because in this, we commune with our Savior. Through this act, through the taking of the cup, through the taking of the bread, we reflect back, realizing that even as Jesus spoke unto his own disciples, he speaks unto the disciples today. And as the men come to distribute the bread and the cup, we'll be reminded that it was Jesus Christ's body that was broken for us. As they pass the elements, and there's two cups in the tray, and you'll take both of those, you'll find a small cracker as well as a small juice cup of grape juice, and as you reflect on it, if you're like me, there's these moments where you kind of stare at these things, you're preparing your heart. If you would remind yourself that Jesus Christ has a plan and his plan included going to the cross to die for me. As you look upon the bread, as you look upon the cup, you would be reminded that Jesus Christ knew my every sin when he went to the cross. He knew what Judas was going to do in that moment, and he knows everything I've done since then as well. And he still went. And as you look upon the elements, you would then think to yourself this. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for what you've done for me. Thank you that you would go to the cross. Thank you that you would work out this plan. Thank you. 
thank you, Lord God. I want, I want to declare, I want to remember, and in this remembrance, declare your death until you come. Communion is especially reflective for those who've trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so today, what happens here in this moment is this. It's not an exclusion, but it's an invitation. And so if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never come to realize what it means that his body was broken, that you didn't confess ever that you're a sinner that needs a Savior, you didn't realize his blood was shed for you, today you've heard. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ went to the cross, died, and was risen from the grave, the scripture says this, you would be saved. So confess. Confess in your own words. Confess in your own way. Tell him. Tell him you want to believe. Lord, I do doubt today, but help my unbelief. God, I want to believe. It's not a repeat after me. It's just from your heart to his. And so the men are going to come. I'm going to pray, and as I do, I trust. I trust that you would pray and reflect as well. And so, Father, we ask that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place. Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to remember. Father, to have the opportunity, even in our worship, even through the words of the scriptures, but even now as we partake of the bread and the cup, to be able to reflect to commune, to declare your death until you come. Father, we're reminded of this promise that you will return. And so, Father, help us in this today. I pray for those in this room who are speaking with you in this moment right now, asking you to save their sins. Lord God, I trust and I know because your scriptures say that it's true. You will forgive them. You will cleanse them. You will make them a new creation. May it be so now. And then may they take of the bread and the cup with those with their new family who believes with them. Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.